Let's pray. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for this practice you gave us. Bless the choir as we sing now in Christ's name. Amen. Sing out, everybody. <laughs> Go one more time, baby. Sorry, my fault.
We are here to worship the Lord tonight. Thank you for being back with us. Brother Ken's going to come lead us. Grab a hymn book. Let's stand together this evening. Brother Ken. Amen. Pastor mentioned the song this morning, page number 325, Trust and Obey in the Blue Song Book. That's page number 325. We'll do that first, second, and last verse. Page number 325 tonight. That's the reason I love good hymns. Uh, they have an awful lot of good doctrine. Uh, if you just listen to the words of that course, you'll get a blessing. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Amen? Let's open up in prayer tonight. Father, we love you this evening. We're glad to be in your house, and we're thankful for folks who made their way out on a cold Sunday night. Lord, we're here tonight to hear from heaven. We didn't come for any other reason uh, than to ask that the name of Jesus be magnified and glorified in our midst tonight. Thank you, Lord, for those that are here. May you bless them for their efforts. Uh, bless the choir as we sing tonight, the preaching to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, amen. You can be seated. Choir practice tonight. We had uh, some new folks. We're delighted they have joined us. I was picking with them a few minutes ago. I said, you know it's good when there's no only standing room only in the choir. Amen. Uh, I love, love, love this old song. We used to sing it all the time. Haven't done it in a while. And we pulled it out tonight. It's one of my absolute favorite songs. It's a classic. Uh, I hope it'll bless your heart. You listen now as the choir sings.
Amen. I know how I made it. I made it by grace. Amen. Love that old Kyla song. Thank you so much, choir. Did a wonderful job tonight. Every time I hear Matt belt out that high note, I think, how can a boy that big sing that high? Amen. Good job, Matthew. Appreciate that. Sounds good, son. Thank you so much, choir. Appreciate you coming early tonight and practicing. Lord will bless you for your faithfulness. A couple of quick reminders. Uh, thank you for those that have already brought in your stuff. We'll keep that in the bulletin for another couple weeks. So uh, uh, for the closed closet, lots of folks brought your things in. We're very grateful for that. Uh, and then uh, I've already got some things to add to our calendar of activities, uh, including a Fellowship of Christian Athletes Night at Patrick Henry uh, that will be coming up in February. I'll give you the dates for that. Uh, we we participate annually with that event, and I'm so grateful for folks who help us with that. Lots of other things that have already been given for, to me today that I'll update our calendar of activities. Keep all of that in mind if you would. Fellas, come on and make your way down tonight if you would. Uh, you be obedient to the Lord with his tithes and your offerings. I understand we already had a few pledges dropped in today. Uh, appreciate that. Remember, you can drop those pledges in at any time uh, that you uh, feel led to do so. We'll keep those in the bulletin for the next six weeks, uh, and Brother Gerald's going to sing for 
for us. Lord, bless the offering tonight. May it be what you'd have it to be. Bless Gerald as he sings. We'll thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Oh uh-huh. 
Amen. Let's all stand together one more time. Page number 324. Draw me nearer. We'll sing that first verse and chorus and have a time of fellowship. Fanny Crosby classic. Draw me nearer. Page 324. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice and it's all thy love to me. But I long to in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee draw me nearer nearer blessed Lord to the cross where thou hast died draw me nearer 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 blessed Lord to thy precious bleeding side amen fellowship a while
Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, don't forget uh, this coming Sunday, uh, a week from today, from 2 to 5, the birthday party for Miss Renee down in the Child Care Center uh, for the ladies, uh, any of the ladies, uh, a painting party, snacks and cake provided. Uh, make sure that you RSVP to Susan so she's got all the supplies available. Uh, Brother Ken and I were joking last week, uh, he and I had the good sense not to have our birthdays close together. We planned it that way. Then uh, I want you to pray. Uh, uh, I shared this on a Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. Pray for Brother Wayne Cozart, Miss Kathy's husband. Uh, he has been battling significant health issues uh, all during the holidays. He goes Thursday for an endoscopic procedure Tuesday to have a cancerous spot removed on his head. Is that right, Miss Kathy? So pray for Wayne, if you would, uh, Miss Kathy Cozart's husband. All right, I'd like to give our preacher boys a chance to preach. I didn't get to do that during the fall or winter because of the Christmas practice. And typically, uh, just to be candid with you, when we do choir practice, I usually don't have a voice left over. So I've asked James to come preach for us tonight. Uh, even though he is is my son. I love the style of preaching that God uses through him, uh, and I love the fact that you can still be an intelligent person, and God call you to preach. Amen? So, son, you come preach for us tonight. All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we will be in the book of Philippians, chapter number 2. The book of Philippians, chapter number 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and read down through verse 13. Uh, we won't deal with all those verses, but for what we will be dealing with, I'd like to get the context. The book of Philippians, chapter number 1, uh, excuse me, sorry, chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to uh, say by way of uh, introduction, my dad was speaking this morning in Sunday school. He's been doing a great Sunday school series on reaching different uh, generations and how uh, each generation of people is different from the next. And he's been talking about reaching generations and reaching different kinds of people. And especially my generation is very different from my dad's generation. The generation under me is very different from how I, um, I was brought up. But one of the things that is consistent in Christianity and one of the things that we all obviously know is that we need to reach people. We, we need to get out there and reach people. We're not called to be not on logs. Uh, Jesus did not save us to sit in this church building, close the doors and be a, a closed community. We're not to go out and make some sort of commune or compound with walls and a fence and guard towers. We're not some sort of cult like that. We are called to go out. And Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that uh, he's speaking to his disciples before his crucifixion, giving them some private one-on-one -on -one instruction. And he's talking about being a witness to others. And he says, by this shall all men know you are my disciples. By this. He doesn't say by how big the name Babish is on your church sign. He does not say by how holier than thou you are in front of your friends or by how much you cannot associate with unbelievers, by how much you have to stay away from them. But by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you love one another. That is what marks the Christian community. By a love for one another a love that transcends regular family boundaries, a love that goes out and reaches others. And I will say that few things, very few things can uh, tarnish the love in a Christian community. Very few things can disrupt the love of God in a body of believers than someone who gets in their heads. And I have no one in particular, I have no one in mind that I say this, but few things can hurt the love of a body of Christ than someone who decides to grandstand. 
then someone who gets it in their head, be it a boy or girl, man or woman, son, daughter, whatever, but someone who decides or who has the idea that they are where it's at, that they are the center of attention, that they are who the church needs to focus on, that they are God's gift to the Christian church. These other dumb people just need to realize that, how amazing they are. There are a few things that will completely and totally destroy the unity in a body of believers. There are a few things can do that. Thankfully, thankfully, God, through the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, deals with that situation. Apparently, there are some people in the church of Philippi who are causing a problem. There are some people who are grandstanding, some people who are making a show, trying to, to draw the attention. And Paul writes to correct that. And what he shows us is that we as a body of believers, we are to serve one another and preserve our unity by following our Lord's example of humility and by knowing that our God is working in us as we do it. As I've already said, this letter is written to the church at Philippi. If you know anything about the book of Acts, this was founded on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 16. We all know the story of the demon girl who comes before Paul and Paul casts the demon girl out. Her people who were using her for money get mad. They throw Paul and Silas in prison. You have the original jailhouse rock where the walls shake and they come out. And the church is founded. The church at Philippi quickly establishes itself as one of Paul's favorite churches. They give themselves to Paul. They are a giving church. They expend themselves to the point of almost poverty themselves in giving to Paul. At the point of writing this letter, Paul is in prison at Rome. This is after his missionary journeys. He is awaiting his trial uh, before what would eventually be his execution. The church at Philippi is concerned. They send a man named, and you've got to love these Bible names, named Epaphroditus. Uh, you, again, you have to love these names. They look great on a birth certificate. Uh, they send Epaphroditus to check on Paul, and Paul sends this letter back to them to inform them of his situation. In chapter 1, he is encouraging the Philippians. He says, do not be discouraged by where I am, because God has granted me a door through this prison to preach the gospel. And Paul says that he rejoices, whether Christ is preached by people who are sincere whether they are hypocrites, the gospel is preached, I rejoice in that. And then we come to chapter 2. And again, we're going to read in verse 1 and read down through verse 13. The Bible says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Notice verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That means let nothing be done because you want people to look at you or to cause a fight. But in lowliness of mind, in humility, let each esteem others, other, better than themselves. I just want to make a quick comment here. This does not mean, and people have this idea, that if you see someone, and this is an example I saw, some Christians think that what this means is that they have to pretend that every Christian they meet is more talented than they are. I read a comment of a young boy, he was in high school, and he struggled with this verse because he had a sister, and his sister was better at English than he was, but he was better at algebra than she was. He thought this verse meant that he had to pretend that his sister was better than algebra, and he didn't understand how God would want him to lie to himself. This verse does not mean that. Notice, it says, let each esteem others. That means to count. You don't pretend that they're better than you, but in your mind you treat them as they are. You regard them as being in a better position than you. You hold them up in your mind. Verse 4. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind, the this there is everything that we've just said, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The title of the sermon is A Servant's Heart for Unity. A Servant's Heart for Unity. Again, we as a body are to serve one another, to preserve our unity. And to do this, we follow Christ's example of humility. And we also recognize that our God is at work in us as we do this. The first thing that we see in our text, and we're going to be in verses 5 through 13. The first thing that we see is that we are to have the attitude and service that Christ had. We are to have the attitude that Christ had. And we're going to dig deep into this text because Paul lays a great foundation for our Savior's humility. The first thing Paul says is that Christ was equal with the Father in eternity. Christ was equal with the Father in eternity. Go with me now into verse 5. Paul begins to lay the foundation. Let, verse one, excuse me, verse 5. Let this mind, and again, the this is all those verses before it, the idea of serving each other, being humble, treating others like they're better than you. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, you are to have this mind of humility. And here's the example. Notice verse 6. Who, being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The first thing Paul says is that Christ was equal with the Father. He says, first of all, that Christ had everything that made God, God. And I I know that sounds trite and, you know, duh. But I want you to go with me into verse 6. It says, who, being in the form of God. There are many people, especially in the early church, who said, now, see, this says he was in the form of God, so he wasn't actually God. He was just, you know, looked like God or, or, or was very close to God. That was a very common thing in the early church. It ravaged the church. The problem is that that word form there is the word morphe. That's where we get the, the idea of metamorphosis. The word morphe means that which makes something what it is. It's the essence of something. It is the core of what makes something the way it is. Whether it's me, you, a dog, a cell phone, whatever. The morphe of that thing is what makes it what it is. So when Paul says, first of all, that Christ was in the form of God, he is not saying that Christ had the appearance or that he was close to God. No, whatever God the Father had that made him God, Jesus Christ possessed that in equal measure. He was on the same level. He was on the same playing field. He was not lesser than that. He was exactly equal with that. The second thing he says is that because of that, he was equal with God, which, of course, seems like a dull thing. But again, in verse 6, who, being in the form, the morphe of God, and then we have this difficult phrase, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We're going to deal with that phrase, thought it not robbery, in a minute, but I want you to notice that phrase, equal with God. 
Because he was in the essence of God, he was on the same playing field as the Father. And I want you to grasp what that means. I've heard so many Christians today who talk about how, you know, you know, we are so thankful that Jesus came and saved us from that evil, mean, and wrathful God of the Old Testament because Jesus is just so nice and so much better than the God of the Old Testament. The problem is that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. He is on that level. I want you to go back and think of everything that you know of God from the Old Testament. Jesus was there in the beginning speaking the word into existence. When the Father called the Israelites out of Egypt, Jesus Christ was there. When the Father sent His prophets to the nation of Israel, that was Jesus Christ acting that as well. When the Father said to Moses, you will have no other gods before me, that was Jesus Christ. He was on that level, commanding worship and service and love and adoration. That was Jesus Christ. Now, I know to all of us this just seems obvious and duh and repetitive. But you must understand, Paul is laying an important foundation because he's about to bring in a contrast. First, we saw that Christ was equal with the Father in eternity. But secondly, Christ laid aside his divine right in the present. Christ laid aside his divine right in the present. Go with me back into our text at the end of verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That ver- the word translated, thought it not robbery, is the Greek word uh, hapargon. When our, when our King James was translated, that phrase meant something different than today. You could think of it today meaning to grasp after, to, to reach out, as if you're reaching out and it's straining to, to hold on to something. And when this says that Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God, what this means is that Christ was not in the throne room of heaven and he didn't think his being God was so great that he would not step back and lay it aside for a moment. When Christ was in heaven, yes, he is God, worshipped and adored. But he didn't think that his expression of being God was so awesome that he would not willingly step back, take his hand off of it, and release it. Because you see, not only did he not hold on to his divinity, but number two, and this is where the humility becomes important, he willingly becomes one of us. He willingly becomes one of us. Notice verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. That phrase, made himself, first of all shows us that the son was not forced to do this. What is about to happen is a voluntary choice. The father in heaven, if you will, did not hold a gun to the Savior's head and make him do this. This was a deliberate, willing choice of the Son, of the second person of the Trinity, to do this. And what does he do? He makes himself of no reputation. In the early church, massive debates raged over this word. It's the word kenosis. And literally, it means to empty oneself. You can think of a bucket pouring out water to to empty himself. So the early church was concerned when when Paul wrote this. Is he really saying that Jesus Christ somehow ceases to be God? Does he somehow cut himself off from being God? Now, that may make sense, but to students of the Old Testament, that poses a serious problem. The Bible says, I am the Lord. Before me there was no God formed. Neither Neither shall there be any God after me. I am the Lord. I change not. If Jesus Christ ceases to be God, then God somehow changes. And that's a problem. 
But we must understand Paul's use of this word. Whenever Paul uses it, he's never literal. He's being metaphorical. He's expressing an idea. So when he says that the son empties himself, what does he mean? He explains it in the next two phrases. And took upon him the form, the same word that we saw earlier, morphe, the essence of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. This is what the son does when he empties himself. The son comes down and takes to himself a human nature. And a nature is what makes something what it is. God has a nature. We have human natures. And Jesus Christ, without ceasing to be God, becomes man. Now, again, to us, we're just like, duh. You know, we hear that. We get that. But think about what this means for a moment. Jesus Christ, from birth, had the right, the authority, the power, and the privilege to be God. As a babe in a manger, he has the right to command his parents to fall at their feet, kiss his feet, and worship him. He has the right to demand Herod to get off his throne and bow before him. He has that right. And he chooses to not use it. He has the right to command Judas to cease to be his follower, to repent of his sins. And he chooses not to use it. He has the ability to make himself cease from hungering for his entire life and chooses not to exercise that right. He veils his deity in the clothes of humanity and becomes truly human. In every respect, he is like us, save that he is without sin. And, and we don't grasp this. We somehow think that Jesus Christ was this superhuman, that he was a human but on a level above us. It says here, he took upon him the form of a, the form of a servant. Form, the same word, morphe, essence. Whatever makes you a human being, save for your sin, all your limitations, all my limitations, the limitations on my thought, on my, the fact that I have to sleep, the fact that I have to eat and walk and speak, Jesus Christ had those in every single respect. Think of the humbling that he has to endure. Knowing, indeed, in this, when Satan tempts him in the wilderness, he is the son of God. What does Satan do? Command these stones that they be made bread. He has that power. He has that right. He created those stones in the first place. He could have done that if he wanted to. He could have made it into a slushy or a milkshake if he wanted to. But he chooses to hide that. Why? Because he's humbling himself. Because he is serving others, because he has a purpose that his father has assigned to him. And in order to do that, he must humble himself. He must count others more important than his own physical comfort. And what does he do? Thirdly, Christ humbles himself to the will of his father. Christ humbles himself to the will of his father. Notice me now in verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, meaning being found in human form being found to be just like a human, because he was. He was the God-man. He humbled himself. He lowered himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Two things here to note quickly. Number one, uh, Christ obeys his Father his entire life. When it says he became obedient unto death, that means he obeyed right up until then, everything before. Jesus Christ lives that life in perfect submission to his Father's will. Now, think about what that means. Just stop for a moment and think. 
it is, we can easily infer and assume that Jesus Christ, growing up as a boy, faced tragedy in his life. No doubt he was picked on. No doubt he was mocked. No doubt he suffered the, the death of his father, Joseph. And at every point, he does not complain. He does not throw a tantrum. He does not pitch a fit. He does not get mad. He does not get irritated. But he humbles himself and submits to the will of his Father. And then, in the ultimate thing, he submits to the point of death by crucifixion. I'm not going to go into all the details. If you've been here long enough, you know it. If you don't, you can go home and research it. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be the ultimate form of punishment. They're masters of torture. Crucifixion is a public... Uh, humiliation, where your body is put on display as you hang there, a bleeding sack of bones and muscle and tissue and mess. And Christ lowers himself. The person who hung the world in the sky humbles himself to the point where he is mocked, spit on, beaten, accused, and reviled. That is how far he lowers himself. Now, Yes, he lowers himself. But then we also see that thirdly, excuse me, fourthly, after he lowers himself, the Father elevates him. And we will tie this together in a moment. Just please bear with me. Fourthly, Christ was elevated for the Father's praise. Again, notice me at the, uh, at the end of verse 8. Even death on the cross, verse 9. Wherefore, because of this, God also hath highly exalted him. Highly lifted him up, raised him up, and given him a name, which is above every name. When it says here that Christ is given a name, it's not referring to as if, Jesus, as if the Father takes out some sort of birth certificate and writes him a brand new real name. Paul is drawing on the Old Testament idea of someone being given a name as someone being given authority, power, rulership, dominion. You see, the father now sees that his son has fulfilled his purpose. And now the father will look all those people in the face. He will, the father looks at all those Jews who says, you deserve this. This was your fault. And the father will now put his son on display and say, no, he didn't deserve this. And because of this, I will reward him. I will now lift him up. He is now crowned king of the universe. And again, we see this again at the end of verse 10. In verse 10. And given a name which is above every name, that, that word that means for this purpose, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow Amen. of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That word Lord there is drawing again from the Old Testament. And that is the word that we, that we would call Jehovah or Yahweh. That Jesus Christ is God. And this is to be done to the glory of God the Father. For the Father's praise. I want to read you something that I came across early. What I'm, what I'm about to read to you was written 1,800 years ago by a preacher named Melito of the city of Sardis. This was his Passover sermon that he preached to his congregation. And as he does so, he delves into what we're dealing tonight of Christ humbling himself. And please listen. Melito says this, And so he was lifted up upon a tree, and an inscription was attached indicating who was being killed. Who was it? It is a terrible thing to tell, but a most fearful thing to not tell this. But listen, as you tremble before him on whose account the earth trembled. He who hung the earth in place is hanged. 
He who fixed the heavens in place is fixed in place. He who made all things fast is made fast on a tree. The sovereign is insulted. God is murdered. The king of Israel is destroyed by an Israelite hand. This is the one who made the heavens and the earth and formed mankind in the beginning. The one proclaimed by the law and the prophets. The one who came in a virgin. The one hanged on a tree. The one buried in the earth. The one raised from the dead who went up into the heights of heaven. The one sitting at the right hand of the Father. The one having all authority to judge and save. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Amen. That is what Christ went through. He humbled himself and lowered himself. Now, if you're like me and like most Christians, you're probably thinking, okay, you know, so what? Great, awesome, hallelujah, we'll, we'll make a great hymn out of it and we'll publish it on Christian radio and it'll be great and wonderful and we'll all feel good about it. But Paul, in verse 12, brings us down to home. Notice now, we are to follow Christ's example. And we are to follow this example to grow in our sanctification. Notice now verse 12. Wherefore, that means because of what we've all just said, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not only as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Meaning, I know you've always obeyed when I'm not there and when I'm there. So keep doing that. Notice, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Many people see this and they flip out. Because work out your salvation, we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. I don't get this, this scares me. The hackles get up and we just get terrified. But understand, many times Paul uses the word salvation in a much broader sense than we do. We have a, a vero and it's necessary. We have a very limited idea of the word salvation. And we refer to you know, conversion, being saved from sins. But Paul uses the word salvation to refer to a broad aspect of the Christian life. And here, he refers to what we would call the idea of sanctification, growing in holiness. Now, again, you're saying, so what? Understand what has just happened. We are called to serve each other. And in what way? By following the example that we have just read, the example of Christ. And how did Christ serve others? By not using what he could have used, his divine privileges. He lays them aside and goes out of his way to the point of death to serve others. Let's ask ourselves, when was honestly the last time we gave up something that was rightfully ours to serve someone else? Amen. When was the last time we laid something aside, and it wasn't something bad, but something that was rightfully ours, when we laid that aside to do something inconvenient to us? That's Christian service. Amen. That is Christian service that promotes unity and love. When was the last time that we gave up a, a Sunday nap? I know most of us spent four months giving up Sunday naps to work on the Christmas play. Uh, month after month. And thank God, thank God when that nap finally came, it was glorious. But when was the last time you, me, us, of our own free choice, maybe we're at, we're at work and we see a coworker doing the same thing that we are, they're overworked. We finished early. We have the free time. When do we lay aside our right to that free time? To help someone. When we are at church, we have this list of shut-ins. And we have the Sunday nap that we can use. And it's rightfully ours. God calls us to rest on Sunday. But when do we lay that aside? That privilege that is ours. When do we lay that aside to go out of our way to help somebody else? 
When do we lay aside those privileges as a body to help each other? This is what prevents the grandstanding. This is what prevents us from wanting the spotlight. Because we know that as Christians, we are called to follow the example of the one who lowered himself to give us everything. When is the last time we did that? Now, if you're like me, you recognize that this task is daunting. And it is. The Christian life is not easy. It is a battle. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do are the things I end up doing. It's awful. But in this text, we are given comfort that we are to do this with God's aid. Notice now at the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation, notice, with fear and trembling, with reverence, with holy awe. Why? Verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Quite simply, we are to work out our salvation. We are to make the effort to do these things, to grow in holiness and love and service, because we know that as we work and as we do this, our God is working in us to aid us. Some of the worst advice you could ever get as a Christian And I see this on t-shirts and on memes. If you're below 60, you don't know what a meme is, I apologize. For those of you who do, you understand. One of the worst memes I've ever seen is this. Let go and let God. That's great for prayer, terrible for living. We are not to sit down on a stump and wait for God to make us do something. We are to get up and do it. We are to get up and try because we know as we work, God through His Spirit is working in us. How? Three ways. Number one. He changes our desires. When it says, God is worketh in you, both to will. That means as we work, maybe as we start out and, you know, yeah, okay, we'll give up that nap, but, but we don't really want to. And then the more we do it, we find the more we want to do it and the more we enjoy it. And then it seems weird, but we, we're eager to do it. How? Because God is at work to change our desires. Secondly, He is at work to change our actions. Again, verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do. How often have we been uh, in situations where we know what we should do, but we don't want to do it, but then somehow we realize we ended up doing it. God changes our actions. And thirdly, He does this for His purpose. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. I want to ask you, How do we as a community, I'm speaking to all of us, all of us. I'm not singling out someone as if me, my dad, or some of the leaders have have achieved this state of perfection here. This is for all of us. This is on equal playing field. How do we as a body of believers expect to be a witness to our community if each of us wants to be in front? If each of us wants to be in first place? If each of us want to get that, that gold imaginary trophy that doesn't even exist, but we think it will? That is not the Christian life. That is not Christianity. That is not service. How do we expect to be that witness? How do we expect to to continue to receive the blessings that God has poured out on us? Because He has. He has blessed this church above anything in this community, to be frank. Do we deserve it? No, we don't deserve it. But can we continue to receive those blessings and then by our actions spit in God's face? as we ignore the needs of others and go out and do whatever we want to do. God bless me, my four, no more, hallelujah, amen. That's not the way it works. To whom much is given, much is required. And the person that does not have, it will be taken away from. How do we expect to reach our community? 
How do we expect to grow? How do we expect to grow on a personal level? How do we, not as a body of believers, but as individuals marching towards glory, how do we expect to grow? If we continue to ignore the next door neighbor, the person at work, the person on the pew, if we know what they need, but we're comfortable and nice and fine, and I'm just going to go home and forget about it. Can we really expect to grow? Now, let me ask you to, let's bring this down to where the rubber meets the road and let's all, get, let's all together get uncomfortable. What are we going to do about this? Are we going to change things together as a body of believers? Now, I'm not calling you to sell your, your car, your home, your family, go join a monastery in China and do things like that. I'm not calling you to do that. But I am asking all of us, are there priorities that we need to reorder? Are there things that we need to cut out? Are there good things, not bad things, but are there good things that you have earned that God is calling you to lay aside to serve others? And let me encourage you with this. The more you serve, the more I serve, the more we serve, what we will find is the same thing that Christ found. What Christ found at the end of his suffering and humility was a reward. A reward that was greater than anything he had suffered. And God tells us over and over, what does he say? It is better to give than to receive. He who loves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life will find it. Lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures, things that are valuable and things that you want that will be in heaven waiting for you. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, because he knows what he has just found is greater than anything else he would ever have or suffer, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The reward that is promised to us for giving up the small thing that inconveniences us, the blessings that will flow on this church, on us as individuals, are greater than anything we could ever suffer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here. Lord, we thank you for granting us the time and the privilege. Lord, we now ask that you do only what you can do. And Father, we pray that your spirit would work. You've promised that your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish the purpose that you've assigned it to accomplish. Father, we love you. We trust you. We cling to your promise. And it's through your son we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you, James. Christian unity is what will unite a church. And I love verse 14. I don't want to add a thought to his message, but I love verse 14. Do all these things without murmurings or disputings. You know as well as I do, our community's famous for it. Divisiveness, when we, Hallmark ought to be unity. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Miss Renee, would you play for us, Miss, Miss Lisa? If you're here tonight and you want to slip up to this altar as we pray this evening, I encourage you to do so. I'm going to dismiss us in prayer. But if you've got a need to come tonight, I want to ask you to make your way this evening. Father, thank you for what we've heard this evening. Lord, we all, many of us who've been in church for any length of time, have gone through disunity. We've gone through times where church had lost the joy. Church became drudgery. Lord, I'm so thrilled to be in a church that, Lord, as far as I know, is united for one thing, glorifying Christ. Seeing sinners saved, saints edified. Lord, I thank you for the reminder tonight that James gave us. Lord, that you laid aside the glory of heaven and took upon yourself the form of, form of man to be nailed to an old rugged tree. 
Lord, I pray that tonight as we walk out of here, we would take the words that James shared tonight to be reminded that we are never more like you than when we are serving others. I'll say that again, Lord. We are never more like you than when we are serving someone else. Bless our church and all the ministries that are going on. Thank you for so many folks who are involved in so many different ways to fulfill the great mission in this community. Bless us until we return Wednesday night. We'll thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed this evening. Thank you for being here tonight. Amen.